Well, good morning. Please have a seat. We're about to start a teaching time. I am elated. I'm almost euphoric here. I don't throw those words around, but we're starting a new series. Uh, it's my favorite word. 35 years ago, I was assigned what should have been a simple thing to uh, translate this word. It, um, in Hebrew, it's sadik or sadek, and, and it translates righteousness. That's how it ends up in your Bible. But that's uh, what... That's what, the, that's what the translation is. That's not what the word means. And my roommate and I, we worked all through the night and into the morning, and we were able to peel back just a little bit of the deeper meaning of that word, Zadek, and we were altered. It changed our lives. My life is still not the same from that evening morning, and John is still for the better because of that. It. And I want to tell you all about this. As a matter of fact, when I was hired here, just, I was just hired temporary, just a six-month thing. Could you just do something with the youth group for six months until we hire someone? And I said, sure, if I can teach anything I want. And I said, whatever. And <laughs> six weeks on Sadek. This is, this is actually the original handout. That first week I taught looks like that. Things have changed a lot since then. As a matter of fact, that, that's misspelled. We didn't even spell it right, not to mention the pixelation there. Uh, the, the students in the ministry liked it so much that they, they turned it into the logo, and that's why it's on my shirt today. It was a logo for quite some time. They said it looked like gang writing. <laughs> what do I care? I was only going to be there six months anyway, so knock yourselves out. <clears throat> I've been teaching it ever since, and why not? It is the single best outline in the history of all civilizations. There, that's it. I said it. The outline for understanding the meaning of that word is the greatest outline ever. It's the outline of the Bible. It's the outline of a densely insightful book called Romans. It is the outline that at least five people give in the Bible that transform those that listen. Revivals break out with this outline. The outline starts at the beginning. It starts with God the nature of God. It begins with God Almighty. God is righteous. He is sadiq. He's sadek. He is like no other. He is holy. God is holy. What you believe about God is the most important attribute about who you are. As a matter of fact, how you define God actually defines you. And the Bible and philosophy and many psychiatrists would say that God is transcendent. He has to be. Transcendent means he's above, he's beyond, he's outside of all creation. By definition, as the supreme creator, he is not part of creation. He caused it into existence. The Bible says that he caused it into existence with a poem. And in the beginning, God spoke, and it was. It just became. And because he's distinct from and separated from all of creation, Karl Barth says God is the absolute other. Mortimer Adler, a more contemporary philosopher, known for his genius, he is the uh, executive editor for the great books of Western civilization. Some of you know those works. Uh, how about... 
the Encyclopedia Britannica. He was the editor for the Encyclopedia Britannica. He says this about the nature of God, that we are humorously arrogant to think that we could use a word like God to think that it could include anything that would remotely resemble the essence of who he must be because words can't do that. As a matter of fact, some people take kind of that advice and they'll, they'll, they won't even say God or write it out. They just, they'll say, they'll do G dash D. Leave the O out. There's no word that could mean who he is. God is holy. The angels in eternity past, right now, and eternity future, they shield their eyes from his glory because they can't endure it, and they chant, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh, God Almighty. He holds this creation in his left weak hand. It says in the Bible that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. Why is that? Uh, Here's why. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because the fear of the Lord says a lot about what you believe about the nature of God. And if you believe in the transcendent, holy, almighty nature of God, that will lead you to fear, which is wise. And the more wise you become, the more you understand about his otherness, which causes you to fear more, which causes you to become wiser. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of course. Let's go backwards on this. The person who doesn't fear the Lord, what does that say about the Lord? The one who doesn't fear God, what does that say about the God he has in his head, the God he has in his pocket? He can conjure him up. He can manipulate him with prayers. He can... You know, he can, God becomes whatever he wants him to become. It's <laughs> no God to fear. You look at the Bible or even study in some respects really deep classic philosophy, and it brings you to this, this fear of the Lord because of his transcendence, his holiness. And by the way, when it says in the Bible, the fear of the Lord, I know it's a thing today to say fear means awe and respect and reverence, and it does. Those authors are being polite because they want people to buy their books, I think. But if you look in the Bible and you study the history of the church, you'll see, old and new, you'll see the fear of the Lord means terror. (laughs) It means fear, like unto death fear. Fear, I wish I'd never been born, that kind of fear. There's very few times in the Bible where... Yahweh actually brings his presence into an audience where he can bring who he actually is into communion with other people, other people, with people. <laughs> and, and, and when people have that experience, let me tell you, they're afraid. Here's, a, here's an example. This is one of the first ones in the Bible. It's Exodus chapter 19. And this is after Israel has been set free from Egypt, the ten plagues against the ten gods of Egypt, and then parting of the Red Sea. Then they, they're going to meet God at Mount Sinai. And so God, he's going through Moses, and he says, so Yahweh says, look, go tell people to consecrate themselves for the next two days. Okay? Clean themselves of all things. Bleach everything. 
tell them to get ready. Because in, in, in the third day, I'm coming to Mount Sinai. Now listen to me. You put a barrier around that mountain, nothing touches that mountain, not even the foot of the mountain, not a goat, not a stray calf. And then don't come towards me until you hear the trumpets. When you hear the ram's horn blow, then you can come forward. Do you think it'll be loud enough for us? I don't know. We'll see. Let's see what happens. And then on the third day, Exodus 19, on the third day, there was lightning and thunder. And then a cloud surrounded the mountain. And then there was a trumpet blaring. And the people, all of the people trembled. Now I'm going to just read from the Bible. It's better. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and and he stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai now was covered with smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire, and smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And the people saw the thunder and the lightning and the trumpets that were blaring and the loud, and and then they saw the mountain smoke and they all trembled with fear. And they said, as they stayed at a distance, they said, Moses, you go talk to him. We won't go any closer. And Moses responded to the people. He said, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. He just tiptoed in to Mount Sinai, and this is what happens. And then Moses says, okay, look, this is a very good thing because now, now that you fear Yahweh, you won't have any more fear in your life. Don't be afraid because now you have the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. You think at Mount Sinai, they were thinking, oh, it means respect, okay? I'll tell you, from the foot of Mount Sinai, you can't see awe. It's too far away. This is terror. They'd rather not been born. This is the sacred scene where God comes and brings Moses the Ten Commandments, and the people said, ten, that's it, twenty, whatever. Please, just keep your distance from me. Holiness, the word holiness is a very difficult word to comprehend or understand. It's a concrete, literally it translates as separate. And God is separate. He's transcendent. He's distinct from all of creation. And it is the nature of God to be holy. That's, that's, that's the essence. That's the, it's his, it's what he is. Here's one author, is a great quote. It is less injury to God to deny his being than to deny the purity of it. The one who makes him no God, the other is a deformed, unlovely, and a detestable God. He that says God is not holy speaks much worse than he that says there is no God at all. (laughs) It'd be better that you were an atheist than for you to believe that God were anything but essentially holy. Picture it like this. God is, his holiness, the essence of his holiness is like the sun, right? Our sun, a, a star, not a bad size star. 
in comparison. But what, wherever this, what does the star do? It brings, its, its, it brings light and it brings heat to everything it touches, right? And then if you could, right, if you could get closer to the sun, it would become brighter and it would become hotter, right? Wrong, okay? The sun is not changing at all in its essence. As you get closer to the sun, you can appreciate a greater sense of its brilliance and its heat. It doesn't change. And, and it, it, this is like the nature of God's holiness, right? He doesn't change. The size of it, the brilliance, the power of his holiness never alters. As people get closer to God, that's what happens. They experience more of it. Here, kind of another little illustration It works as well is with, or an aspect of this illustration. Uh, when, you, when you get closer to the sun and you're quite literally blinded by the brilliance of the sun, when you're vaporized by the power of the sun, is it the sun's fault? It, it, is, it, is it the sun's wrath that unmade you? No, 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 no. That's just it's just the nature of the sun, and the nature of a human. Carbon-based product. They don't go well together in close proximity to one another. And so, if you just with that in mind, you'll see the various encounters in the Bible where God says, "Okay, let's." Let's have a conversation. Let's have some kind of engagement with one another. And we, I will allow that to take place and for you to endure it. But listen to me. Listen. These things are holy. And they are to be treated as holy, different. So he says, he's saying, caution, you've got to handle these things as though your life depends on it because it does. You're flying closer to the sun than is safe. So you be careful because sinfulness and holiness, it is combustible when they're interacting. Another word for holiness is sometimes we sang about it, glory. Glory means weight, heavy weight. And these are stories of people who took the glory of God lightly. These are the people that did not appreciate the essence of his holiness. These are the people that didn't know God. Let's start with the Ten Commandments, right? We're on Mount Sinai already. He comes down and says, my name is Yahweh, the God who saved you from Egypt, the God who set you free from slavery. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, sure. Why would we? You just destroyed ten, part of the Red Sea. Where would we look? We want no other God. You are the greatest of all gods. Okay, great. Let's go to two. We sh you shall make no idols, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. You can't make anything that could possibly be even relatable to my holiness that it is spiritual, not physical. And they were like, no, who would try? They will. But we do. <laughs> but it makes sense. Let's go. What's number three? My name is holy. You shall, take, you shall not take the name Yahweh, your God, in vain. For Yahweh will not, hold, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Why? Well, for one, not all words are created equal. Right there. God says this word is a holy word, Yahweh. 
And it, it, the idea of the name of God means it is his nature, it is his character, it is his identity. And kind of the, the double meaning here of using his name, you can't use that sacred holy name, like use it for your stuff. You can't go using that name to curse someone or to get what you want or to manipulate. You manipulate the name you think you're going to manipulate me. Who do you think Yahweh is? The other one is just to use Yahweh's name carelessly, recklessly, like it's like all words are the same. So that's what holy means. It means heavy, weighty, glory. In Leviticus chapter 24, here's what happens. Two men start fighting. Apparently one guy's losing pretty bad, I would imagine, and then he uses the name to curse his opponent. And then everyone gets very quiet. This had never happened before. Someone bumped into the third commandment. And so they grab the person and they bring him to Moses and Moses doesn't know what to do. So he quarantines him until he finds out what Yahweh wants. And Yahweh says this, get that blasphemer out of camp. Everyone who heard him use my holy name as a curse, you lay your hands on him as witnesses. Then everybody backs up and then everybody stones him. Verse 13 to 15 says, say to the people of Israel, those who curse their God will be punished for their sin. Anyone who blasphemes the name of Yahweh must be stoned to death by the whole community of Israel. Any among you who blaspheme the name of Yahweh must be put to death. Wow. I mean, he just used his name recklessly. Can you imagine, can you imagine if this were still the standard today? Can you, I mean, think about, I mean, think just for a second. Yeah. There'd be a lot of mounds of rocks, right? There'd be everywhere, it seems like, maybe some locations more than others. Or would there? I don't think there would be. I think there'd be a mound of rocks where everyone in the community was participating in this event. And then it wouldn't happen again for about another five years. And then another mound would show up. People would know better that they're bumping up against the holiness of God. And it wasn't the holiness of God that did it. It was this being too close. When I was in school, I saw a guy, he was a big, huge, strong guy that was kind of crazy. And his mom didn't pick him up or somebody didn't pick him up. I don't know, he was on a payphone and they didn't get it to him on time and he was mad. So he slams the payphone down. He's a big guy. And he revs back and punches with his fist a solid brick wall. I mean, like you see on TV where the wall kind of crumbles and puts a big dent in it. Except that's not what happens in real life. It shattered his hand. I saw a man shatter his own hand. When the cops came and the ambulance hauled him off, no charges were pressed against the brick wall. The bricks and the mortar did not even know. In the interview, they didn't even know they were punched because they were doing what their essence was, and that fist, well, it was doing what the nature of that was. You think you can shake your fist or argue with the holiness of God? Really? Let's go to the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. For in six days Yahweh made the heaven and earth and in everything that's in the sea and all those things within it. And then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it 
There it is. Holy, separate, different, tzaddik, righteous. And yeah, okay, so this is what happens. You can imagine. This is, I think we're in the book of Numbers now, but you have to understand the context of this story. The first, I don't know, five paragraphs in Numbers chapter 15 is talking about sacrifices for sin and peace offerings and those sorts of things. And then there's two paragraphs dedicated to unintentional sins, accidental violations against the holiness of God, whether it's a person or a community, right? When we just like stumble into something and we, we without doing anything on purpose, we violated, we got a little bit too close, right, to God's holiness, his righteousness. And so God says, look, I know that can happen. And so I have a list of alms you can give, some sacrifices for sin that can atone for that sort of sin. And then after seven times mentioning the word unintentional, he says, but with an intentional sin, that's different. If you're from a Catholic background, an intentional sin, it, the word could be translated uh, premeditated sin. Literally, it means a high-handed sin. Catholics, this is a mortal sin. And the accidental sins are venial sins. And the word says, right there on the screens, but anyone who sins defiantly blasphemes Yahweh, and that person must be cut off from his people because he has despised Yahweh's word and broken his commands, and that person must surely be cut off. His guilt will remain upon him. There's no sacrifice for that soul. He, he, he premeditated this violation against God. The next verse, that's the point, the next verse, a man defiantly wakes up on the Sabbath and goes looking for firewood. I know, right? If you're going to, anyway. So everybody else is obeying the Sabbath. He's going to get a jump on them. He's going to cheat. He's going to get ahead of his neighbors and have more firewood than them. They see him. They catch him. They don't know what to do to him. So they give him to Moses, and Moses puts him in custody for a while, and this is what happens. They held him in custody because they did not know what to do with him. And then Yahweh said to Moses, the man must be put to death. The whole community must stone him outside of camp. So the whole community took the man outside of camp, and they stoned him to death, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. The wrath of God? No. He changed his navigation to fly too close to the sun on purpose. And that's what happens. It's just, that's just the nature of God and the nature of sinful man. There are sacraments or sacred rituals, holy sacraments, events that God has allowed us to participate in so that we could get closer to him and live, right? We live in two realms. So we have this holy spiritual realm, and we have this sinful realm, and where these overlap, God says, I'm going to let these overlap on occasion, but you have to follow every single instruction because this is when I can get close to you and you can get close to me. I will provide an opportunity so that you will not be blinded by my glory, that you will not be exterminated by my holiness. So, do this. Listen to me. Like in the Older Testament, only Moses, his big brother Aaron, and only the men that, that are descendants of Aaron can do these things, working the tabernacle, which later becomes the temple. These guys are the only guys that can do it. 
And so the first, I think it's the first time they, they participate in this. Moses and Aaron, they go up and on the altar there, they put sin offerings and they put peace offerings. They're, they're going to have communion with God. And then they back away and they bless the people. Okay. And then it says this, and it, it says, and then the glory of Yahweh appeared to the whole community. He showed up just like he said he would. And then look what happens. Is then the fire blazed forth from Yahweh's presence and consumed the burnt offerings and the fat that was on the altar. And when the people saw this, they shouted with joy and they fell face down on the ground. They were like, look, it, we, like we got, we got a, we got a blow by. We got to see something like the, the presence of God. And then the very next verse. The two older sons of Aaron say, hold my beer. They do. Well, actually, they say, hold my wine. They get drunk. And they saw that they, that what happens when the spirit, you know, when the presence of God shows up. And so they get their incense burners, these two guys, and they, and they fill them with coal. And then they throw the incense on there. And it says, and the presence of the Lord consume them. They died in the presence of God. Yeah, this will bring him up, and he shows up. And then Moses says to Aaron, this is what happened to your sons. And Moses says to Aaron, this is, this is what Yahweh meant when he said, I will display my holiness through those who come near me, and I will display my glory before all of the people. And it doesn't end there. Moses tells Aaron, look, you go call your cousins, and they can haul your son's dead bodies out of the, of, of the community, and the rest of your family can mourn for them, but you and your two remaining sin, uh, sons, your two remaining sons, your shift isn't over yet. So you three guys need to stay here at the temple, at the tabernacle, and continue to be priests because you've been anointed with oil, and so help me. If there's any grief shown on any of you, you'll die. If your hair is misplaced, if you tear a robe, that'll be the end of you. And here's what they did. They did as Moses commanded. <laughs> Rituals and sacred ceremonies in the Old Testament were set up so that we could be near God, so that we could get a better understanding of what God is like. It's God drawing near. And I love to say this, that that's how it was in the Old Testament, you know, right? That was a long time ago, and I'm glad that's over with, but it's not. These sacred rituals, these holy sacraments, they are still part of God's, under, God's dis, definition of holiness. And so Paul writes the Corinthian church, New Testament, and says, listen, there's no mystery to people that understand two realms why people in your congregation are getting sick and some have actually died. They took lightly the heavy things of God, and you make a mockery of the way you do the Lord's table. It is a special moment that's not like any other meal. It, it brings in the presence of God. We told you how to do it, and you've turned it into an all-you-can-eat buffet? Wow. You can't be careless with the holy things of God. He hasn't changed, and he never will. When I was in seminary, I think it was my first semester, I was walking into a Greek class, and a buddy of mine 
grabs me and he you know, like shakes me and says, hey, look, look, right now there are eight to 10 foot swells at the trestles. If we leave right now, we'll have an hour of surfing before the sun goes down. Trestles in San Clemente, it's a pretty good drive. It's where the, uh, they have a surfing competition there every single year. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, in my life, I have never heard anyone ever say, I wish I were in Greek class right now. Anyone? No one's ever said that, right? Uh, but I've heard people say, I wish I was surfing right now. So I went surfing. And it's a long story, but it, it was everything advertised. It was an amazing day at the trestles, maybe a little bit too amazing, and we stayed out too long. And the sun did go down. And the waves were so violent that it tore the leash off my ankle. My board went in. And the last set of waves, they break into the cliffs of San Clemente. And so I'm stranded in the dark with 8 to 10-foot swells in the Pacific Ocean, and that's when I heard it for the first time. I wish I were in Greek class right now. <laughs> now, I used to be a lifeguard, and I knew, don't panic. But I also had figured out not panicking was not working. So I started to panic. And I started to scream and yell as loud as I could. No one else was out there. There's one or two other guys. That's it. And then I, it, I just resolved that I will drown. Because the, the roar of the thunder, the thunderous roar of those waves, they made fun of my yelling and screaming. I could almost not hear myself. And that's when I died. It's a longer story. I did not die. But the reason I'm telling you this story is to say this. The Pacific Ocean was not mad at me. It was not being vindictive towards me for something that I had done to her. The Pacific Ocean was doing what she has done always, what she does best. She destroys those who mock her and don't respect her. She did that in the Old Testament. That was her nature. She does that in the New Testament, and she does that today. Because if you know the Pacific Ocean, she is not to be taken lightly. That is her nature. That's how God is. God is holy. He always has been. He always will be. He can't be anything else but holy. God is Sadiq. He is holy. If you're able to grasp a little bit of that, then you'll find yourself in a Calvin and Hobbes screaming, I am significant, screamed a dust speck. Who was God that he would care for man? or be mindful of him. Every single person that has ever had an audience with God that has been exposed to that kind of brilliance, experienced that level of beauty, that moral perfection, that amplitude of power, they experienced terror. fear unto life, wishing, hoping that they had, not died, they had never been born. 
And this is where the story begins, that God is great, God Almighty. The angels hide their eyes so that they might be in his presence and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. How you define God, that's how you will be defined. And this, this is God is holy. I want to tell you what I enjoy the most about this attribute of God or the nature of God. It's this. The saying that seems to be universally true, I think it is in all the created world, that familiarity breeds contempt, right? Not with God, not with his holiness. As a matter of fact, I'd say the opposite is true. The more a person is exposed, the deeper they go in their understanding of who God is, especially right here in this area of holiness, the greater their sense of wonder the greater their appreciation, the greater their, their enjoyment of the terror of being closer to the sun. It's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. The finite can never extinguish the infinite. Like here's a great example, John the apostle, right? John the disciple, the 12 disciples. John is one of those, but he has a nickname like none other. John, his nickname is the one whom Jesus loved, okay? Sometimes it's translated the beloved disciple. Can you imagine the one whom Jesus loved? Listen, you're not, maybe you're not listening the right way. It's not the one whom loved Jesus, okay? I mean, we all get that, right? We all, I love Jesus, yeah, yeah. No, I'm the one Jesus loves. <laughs> I'm the one whom Jesus loved. In this one, in this one moment, the, the, the Last Supper, they're sitting around that table. They all recline at the table culturally. John is next to Jesus, and he feels the safety to put his head on the chest of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. A grown man puts his head on the chest of Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved. And why not? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was taken, John stayed. During his mock trial and, and, and beatings, John was there at the foot of the cross. I don't know where the guys were, but John was there. John, the one Jesus loved, the one Jesus knew, the one Jesus trusted. One of the last sentences that comes out of the mouth of Jesus before he says it is finished and is extinguished in this first time, he looks down and sees his mother, and he says, Mom. And he looks over at, at the beloved, the one whom Jesus loved. He goes, Mom, that's your son. And then he says to John, that's your mother. And the last sentence, and from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Je Jesus said, I, I can trust John with I can trust my mother with John. That's the one he loved. So I'm just saying, he really knew the Lord. The Lord really knew him. And then 30 years later, they, maybe I don't know how many years later, at the end of John's life, towards the end, he has a reunion. John writes the last book of the Bible. It's called Revelation, okay? And it's the revelation of Jesus about how things end. And, and, 
and the way, the way Jesus reveals himself to John, it's kind of humorous. And, and you've seen these weddings reveals, right? They're going around the corner, that sort of thing. Jesus says something to John towards his back. And so John turns around, and this is how the reveal goes down. This is the one who knows Jesus so well. He says, and then I turned around to see him, see who was speaking to me. And I saw seven golden lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone looked like the son of man. And he was wearing a long robe with a golden sash across his chest. And his head and his hair, they were white as wool. No, they were white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. And his feet were like polished bronze refined by the furnace. And his voice, it thundered like the mighty ocean waves. And he held seven stars in his right hand. And a sharp two-edged sword came was there in his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. He knew him best, and this is him seeing him again. Have you ever heard anyone say, ask the question, is it going to be boring in heaven? The answer is, what God do you think is going to be there? Boring? <laughs> no one's ever yawned in the presence of God. 10,000 years, he's going to call us. We're going to turn around and we're going to fall as though we were dead every time. This is fun. This is how it, the story goes. And then he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death and the grave. The holiness of God. It'll bring you awe and humility and respect, reverence. But if you understand the holiness of God, it'll bring you fear. And by fear, I mean terror, terror unto death. That's, that's God, holy, cut, separate, apart, transcendent. And there's the rub, is we want to be with him. We long to be near him, and we can't endure it. And, it, and, and, and we're not alone. See, here's the thing. God wants to be with us. He wants to be in our presence and not evaporate us and unmake us. But he cannot lower his righteousness. He cannot become unsadic so that we might have a moment with him. He can't change his standards because then he won't be holy, and that's his essence. And so he can't stoop. He can't, there's nothing within him that can stoop. So here we are. How do we get home? How do we get home? That's not for this week. <laughs> G.K. Chesterton was listening to some people talking about you know, their little petite gods and asking, oh, how many different ways are there to God? And Chesterton, knowing God, said, there is a way. How could there be a way? 
God is holy. He is Sadek. He is not like us. It starts there. Let's pray. In the spirit world, those angels covering themselves and their eyes are in your presence and they can't stop chanting, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh God Almighty. Lord, I'd ask that your spirit would reveal to us just a glimpse from behind this holy of holies of what your essence is like so that we might have a greater appreciation of who you really are. That this God in our pocket, the one that we think can be manipulated or connived, the one we think we can negotiate with, the one we think we can lie to and bluff, Lord, that is an idol we have forged in our hearts and we confess that we have violated that first and second commandment. Lord, would you bring to us a greater understanding of your brilliance and power, your size and wonder, who you are, so that we might enjoy that. Lord, lead us home. We're lost. And we don't even have the wisdom to ask how. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.